Welcome to Ordinary Faith. Good to see you. Steve, I just realized we didn't tell you what we were doing, and so I appreciate your flexibility. He, he had no choice, but he still was flexible, so that's good. So uh, this is a message three in a three-message series. Every message stands on its own, but I should warn you, today I'm talking about living in victory. Amen. Sound exciting, huh? Good deal. Tucker, pumped? All right, Tucker's pumped. All right, good deal. Victory over snowplows. I'll make a special sermon just for snowplows. Sounds good. The first sermon in the, the series was about living in the same kingdom as Jesus, and the second one was about living the same way. Today's about living the same victory. So even though the message stands alone, I want you to understand that each message laid a foundation for the next. And so if you're going to live in the victory that Jesus Christ has for you, you've got to live from the same kingdom that he lived from and live in the same way that he lived, okay? You've got to learn from both of those, and that will lead you into a place of victory in your life, not just, not just the, theoretical and theological, but in a way that is, uh, actually works out in the natural. So let me give you a couple verses that we Christians really love. Romans 8.37 says, Not, No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Amen. Despite all these things. So right now, what are all your things? I mean, what is it you're dealing with today? Came to church today, dealing in some area that you need victory in. I mean, we always have something, right? Some place where we need God to just show up, where we just need more God in our life. So this verse you take and you point at that problem. And say, despite my money problems, I have overwhelming victory in Christ. Despite my marriage problems, I have overwhelming victory in Christ. Despite my children's problems, I have overwhelming victory in Christ. Despite my health problems, I have overwhelming victory in Christ. You see what I'm saying? That's what this verse is saying. Now, I know what you're sitting there thinking. Or I think I know what you're thinking. I don't read minds well. I don't read my own mind well. But that's, uh, you'll see what I mean shortly. You're like, Michael, isn't that just self-talk? Isn't that just, just trying to convince myself and, and denying the facts of my life? I want to tell you something. Just because something is factual in your life doesn't mean it's true. We as Christians don't deny the facts. We just deny facts the power to rule our lives. Do you hear me? Just because something is really going on and it's your circumstances doesn't mean, one, it's from God doesn't mean it's true, and doesn't mean it should have power over how you decide to live life and how you decide to follow Jesus Christ. You hear me? Circumstances are just facts. God didn't call us to be men and women of fact. He calls us to be men and women of faith. You understand? So victory is about living in faith and living in what Jesus has provided, not what the world has declared. It's time to start changing our understanding. The world has its own definition for success, for happiness, for everything. It's got a definition for everything, and they're all wrong. The world's dictionary stinks. Because in that dictionary, you're going to be miserable. You're going to have to make everybody else happy. You live for everyone but your own heart, but God. And so victory is realizing it's repenting is what this whole series is about, which means you're changing the way you're thinking from a lower form of thinking to a higher way of thinking. If you're going to live in victory, you've got to come in some kind of elevator up in your thought processes above your problems. It's time to level up, okay? Another amazing passage is in 2 Corinthians 3a. I love this verse. This verse challenged me. Because for a long time, I'm looking at Christianity like it's a drudgery, 
Like, well, you know, you just got to be faithful and you just got to suffer until Jesus comes back. And maybe, maybe, every now and then God will be nice. And that is a stupid way to believe. Because Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3, let it rock your world like it did mine. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit's giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? So I just, I want to level up your expectations today. I want us to start to stop living and uh, oppressed by our challenges and by our failures and start living in a victory and a joy. Christian people, Christ followers, should be filled with joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence of the Father inside of you, okay? So we're going to live in victory. Now, you may be sitting there and have some areas of your life, but you're not experiencing victory. There are several places in my life that I read Romans 8, 37, about the overwhelming victory that is Christ and that is for me. And as I read that, I, I, I'm like, but I'm not experiencing that victory. And so today we're going to look at how to, to bring that victory out of theology and into Monday morning. Okay? Real practical type stuff. Are you ready? I'm going to need help today. I'm kind of fired up. Six people are with me. <laughs> yes. They're probably the ones who, when you say, are you here, and they all, it's those six, right? And then everyone else catches up. All right. Let's look at three things Jesus Christ is victorious over. And the first one, to me, when, as I was writing this message, this was the most exciting. But then today, as I was going over the last point, that's the one I got more excited about. So I think I'll just be excited about the whole message. Amen. That's my plan, okay? So... Jesus is victorious over our expectations, is where I want to begin. Over, he was victorious over expectations, specifically the expectations of others. So let's look at what Jesus Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, the first chapter, Matthew 5. And he talks to his audience, thousands of people at this point probably, and he says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I need to lay a foundation here so you can see how he was free of the expectations. But when Jesus laid this out, when he said this, he's talking about some of the most honorable and respected people of his day. So here's Jesus looking at the, the religious leaders the ones that everyone's like, oh, I wish I could be like them, but I could never be a Pharisee. That's the attitude they had in that day and age. He's looking at them and he's saying, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. Now, that, you, you don't realize the leap he's making here. Because here's what a Pharisee was. In, in Jewish culture, between, by the age of 12, Jewish children were, were taught and expected to memorize... Genesis through Deuteronomy in your Bible, the Torah. So 12-year-old Jewish children would have the first five books of the Bible committed to memory. But we're not talking about 12-year-old children. This, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. By the time they were in their mid-20s, certainly by the time they were 30, a Pharisee would have had the entire Old Testament committed to memory. So when Jesus is quoting scripture at these guys and talking to them, you've got to understand, they know the scriptures he's talking about. They have it committed to memory. You're like, why would anyone do that? Well, first of all, they didn't have books and, and smartphones, and if they did, they wouldn't have been very good back then, you know. 
In fact, their books, the Torah was, you know, it was on a scroll, and it was handwritten, and they were big, and they were heavy. Books like we know them didn't exist at that time, not, not in the way that we know them. And they were very expensive, the ones that did. And so they committed it to memory. Now, that's not all. I mean, memorizing the Old Testament, I think that's a pretty impressive feat. I mean, I can barely read Second Chronicles. I, I'm just saying. So-and-so begat, so-and-so. I don't even care about my family that much. I'm just saying. I don't care who's related to who. That's my wife's job. She knows. And, you know, we're from Tennessee, so we go to a family reunion, and I meet someone new, and I say, are we related to them? And she says, no, and I'm good, okay? It was worse when I was a teenager. There was Anyway, that's a longer story. Let me just say that our our family trees don't fork enough in Tennessee. But anyway, just kidding. That was a terrible joke you should never say in church, ever. And I did it. So anyway, they fast. These guys, though, the Pharisees, they were so religious. They had this memorized. They fasted twice a week. Twice a week they fasted for the, uh, in, in pursuit is their religious endeavors toward God. They, they tithed everything. They even tithed the herbs out of their garden. They made sure they gave that to the temple. Uh, they, they honored God in ways that, that are beyond our imagination. They honored God's name so much they wouldn't even write it down with the vowels. They would just write the four consonants down, and they wouldn't say it out loud. That's how much they honored and respected God's name. The Sabbath, oh my goodness, the way they honored the Sabbath, I mean, it was serious for them. Now, here's what I want you to understand. These incredibly religious people, these people that are like the example for the ancient world, Jesus is saying, your righteousness has got to exceed their righteousness. What's he talking about? I mean, I I don't even have enough life left to get the Old Testament memorized. What what do you mean? So Jesus clears it up a little bit in Matthew 6, 1, which is still in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Here's the thing about the Pharisees. Everything they did, they did to be seen. When you met a Pharisee on the street, you knew he was a Pharisee just by the way he was dressed, by the Bible verses he wore hanging off of his, his head and, and on his forehead and on his clothes. Everywhere they went, you knew what they were. When they were going to tie that 10% of their herbs or whatever else, they didn't just sneak into the temple, drop it into the offering basket and sneak out. No, no. There was a little parade on the way, and everyone knew how much they were giving. When they prayed, they didn't just pray over here in a corner. They didn't just get in their closet and ask God to bless them. No, they prayed on street corners really loud and probably about you and not them. Okay? Everything they did was for the expectations of all the other Pharisees and all the other people. In fact, what Jesus said about them, he insulted them one time, very lovingly, I'm sure, and he said, you guys are like beautiful caskets filled with dead men's bones because those same acts that you would see covered up the acts you wouldn't see. They would steal from widows and orphans. They would, they would hurt people. In, in Jesus' own ministry, when he would heal someone on the Sabbath in the synagogue, they would freak out, much rather preferring a sick person to suffer than experience the healing of Christ just because of their jealousy. They were not nice people on the inside. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about. Your righteousness has got to exceed that. And here's the thing. These people who were like the the religious higher-ups of the day, the respected ones in faith, they had expectations of Jesus. They they, They looked at Jesus Christ, who was the one and only true Messiah. The only Messiah Israel is ever gonna get is Jesus Christ, okay? And they looked at the Messiah and they demanded that he meet their expectations. And here's where I want you to see that Jesus had victory over expectations because he heard their expectations, saw their expectations, and did not care about their expectations. Amen? Amen. How would you like to live free of the expectations of others? Anyone? Okay, good. All right. How do we do that? Because this is a victory Jesus died for. And I'm going to show you how he did it. How did Jesus live free? He said this in John 8, 28. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus said, and he's talking to these Pharisees, by the way, when you lift up the Son of Man on the cross. So Jesus is saying, when you kill me. All right? John 8. This is early in his ministry, by the way. Pretty early in his ministry. When you kill me, then you will understand that I am And he's using the same name that God used talking when he was talking to Moses, identifying with his father. You will know that I am he. You'll understand that I am he. Now listen to this next verse. I do nothing of my own, but say only what the father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. One more. Look at this one. John 12, 49. Jesus says, excuse me, I, I shouldn't have had that banana nut thing. I don't know who made treats today, but they were definitely treats. So, John 12, 49, I don't speak of my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me, hear this, you got to hear this, has commanded me what to say and how to say it. Amen. So you know how Jesus was free of expectations? He lived for his Father's expectations. He didn't need to worry about their expectations. He lived for his father's expectations. And that, my friends, is how you learn to live in the victory that Jesus Christ bought for us on the cross. You stop living to please everybody else, and you live for an audience of one. Live for an audience of one. Now you're sitting there going, ah, that sounds great. But it also sounds really challenging, right? Because God knows What was it Tupac said? I never quote Tupac, but I don't know this one line. Only God can judge me. Why does that not terrify you? (laughs) How can you say that? Anyway, so when I live for an audience of one, all of a sudden I realize everything I do, everything I think, the deepest place in me that nobody else knows, God knows. God knows. And so when I start living for an audience of one, I stop looking at how I look on the outside. I can dress right. I can speak and use the right words. But I can still be a selfish, obnoxious jerk within. I'll I'll hop in the car after church, after we're done with Discover Growth, which is at noon instead of 4 o'clock. 
and Discover Ordinary Faith, which is at noon, which is the shameless plug for both of those classes, you should come. But that's all done. I'll hop in my car. Now, many of you don't know me. You've only heard me teach, and so you might be under the impression that I'm a wonderful person, but I'm actually kind of a jerk. And here's how to find out. Drive five miles below the speed limit in front of me. That's right. I'll pull out of this parking lot. I got a Ford Taurus with a 3.5 EcoBoost. That thing is fast. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and I'll get out, and now listen. We live in America, and in America, you are free to drive five miles below the speed limit, just not in front of me. <laughs> because I am free to drive five miles over the speed limit because of grace. <laughs> just kidding. It's not true. Not true. I'll get out, and, and Pokey Joe will get in front of me, and then we're going to find out who Michael is, you know? And, and it's not this, oh, God bless your heart. I came from Tennessee. does not mean what you think it means. <clears throat> God bless your heart. You must have all day. And I don't because I need a nap. And so if I'm just living for Michael and all I care about is the appearances, man, I'm just going to sit there and I'm going to bless that guy out as long as I have to follow him. But if I live for an audience of one, I realize I'm not in that car alone. My heart is not in that car alone. My hands may be on the wheel, but I am not the co-pilot in this vehicle. God is the navigator, and where he wants to go, how he wants to go there, and apparently he wants me to go five miles slower than I want to go. That's how we do it. That's how you live for an audience of one. You, you, you stop worrying about the expectations. How many of you know you're never going to make everybody happy? How many of you know you're probably not going to make anybody happy? Live for him. Because let me tell you something about living for an audience of one. When you live for an audience of one, it makes things very, very simple. I need to know only then what my father wants of me. And even though I will probably not accomplish it, and if I do, I won't do it well, I also know that there is some kind of printing press in the heavenlies that's printing out mercy and grace every day, fresh and new for what I need. And so wherever I fall short, God is just going to cover that thing with grace, and I no longer have to live in the anxiety of pleasing people. I live for an audience of one. This is a journey. I wish you could walk out that door living for an audience of one and never being a people pleaser again. I wish that could happen. But you can walk out of this place today taking a journey living for God rather than people. Amen? You want to be free of the expectations of others? Live for an audience of one. However, you should know that when you live for an audience of one, uh, God, God, it might lead you to do things that no one understands. No, and, and I think that's actually a great place. I would tell you stories, but I, I got to get to my last point sometime before 12 o'clock when we start Discover Growth and Discover Ordinary Faith that many of you are coming to. So, <laughs> Jesus, that's right, I just declare that in Jesus' name, all right? So, Jesus lived in victory over the expectations of others. And then Jesus lived in victory in another way. My, Hebrews 4, 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who's entered into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. 
This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus also lived in victory over sin. Lived in victory over sin. Now let me, let me kind of, let me help you wrap your head around this a little bit. Sin. Sin and sins. Two different things, by the way. You and I live in a world that is an atmosphere of a thing called sin, singular. It's a power. It's everywhere. It fills the entire universe, well, it fills the entire planet, Okay? It's why terrible things happen. It's why human trafficking exists. It's why wars and genocide happen. It's, it's why horrible atrocities and crimes are committed. You live in a world, this world is under a dark blanket, under the power of sin. That's the atmosphere, the supernatural atmosphere that you and I live in, okay? But big sin like that, although it, it it's that atmosphere and it's horrible in the world it's not my immediate problem I have a, a more immediate problem and that is sins plural I commit sins now it's horrible that there's war and genocide and murder and crimes but it, you know what's even more horrible for me is that I live in a family that needs me to be a husband and a father a leader and a lover in that place and so my more immediate problem is I often don't listen to my wife like I should or my children. I'm often inattentive to what God is doing in their life and their struggles. Those are sins that I'm more likely to fall into. I might take a day and rather than spend it growing in my faith, spend it just simply escaping and wasting that time. These are the things that hinder me and hold me back. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ lived in victory over both, over sin as a power and over sins as the disease and the result of that power. He lived in victory over it. And when I read Hebrews chapter 4, which I, I just shared with you, I see that all the temptation that came at Jesus, he overcame it. And I think that's amazing because here how, here's how Michael rolls, okay? Temptation. This is how I am about temptation. I'm like, hey, God, would you deliver me with temptation? But I'd like to stay friends with him on Facebook. I'd like to stay in touch just in case I need him. All right? That's how Michael rolls. Because here's how temptation works in my life. Temptation comes, and I resist. And it intensifies. And it comes again, and I resist. But sooner or later, it intensifies to the point that I fold. All right? But not Jesus. Jesus never folded. He never backed down. He never stopped. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself and did not fold. All right? Jesus is tough, man. He's bad to the bone in a good way. Never mind. I, I didn't know. I didn't want to misread that. But anyway, that's Jesus. He lived in victory over those kinds of things in our life, and he paid for that victory for us. So let me, let me throw in just a, a little pressure valve here. 1 John 1.8. Let me say a word about 1 John before I read this text. 1 John will skin you alive. All right? Amazing book. But we need the Holy Spirit as we read that book, okay? We just need God to describe and open our hearts to what it's saying. But it says this in 1 John 1 verse 8. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. 
and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. All right? You see, there are those who would argue that a Christian has the power to get to a place of sinlessness. They could live without sin in their life. I have not achieved that. My wife can testify loudly. Say amen, honey. Amen. Yeah, there you go. So that I have not achieved that sinless thing. That's not even our goal for today. Our goal is not sinless, but to sin less. And that's the journey. I'll tell you something about getting to know God. God's, God will blow your mind. The closer you get to the holy, the closer you get to the righteous, the more you understand how far from holy and righteous you are. And so just by virtue of closeness, we begin to see ourselves in a new light, and it's very humbling. That's why God puts this safety release right here. Just, just confess it. That's all God's wait, waiting for you to do is confess it in your life. you got sins in your life. God just says confess it comes from an old Greek word, homologeo. It means to say the same thing. It means to say, like God, that this sin is destroying me, hurting people around me, and is what God's wrath is all about, these sins in my life. Confess it, agree with God that it's wrong, and then He will cleanse you from that sin and all unrighteousness. So apparently there's like some kind of supernatural cleaning crew that goes around, and God's like, hey, that one confessed, just clean the whole thing off. Yeah, amen. Okay? That's how God works. He is a God of grace and goodness, okay? So this journey we're talking about is moving into a place of victory over these sins in our life. And so we, we grow in that. Now, Jesus lived in perfect obedience. So let's, let's kind of flip from us to Jesus for a second. Try to bear with me. I might be jumping a little bit of a, a ditch here in, in thinking. Jesus never committed sin or sins. Jesus rather pursued perfect obedience. Perfect. His question isn't, is that wrong? Which is usually our question. His question is, what is exactly and perfectly right? That was how Jesus looked at things. He never wanted to know how far he could get from the Father and still be okay. He always wanted to know, how close can I get to the Father? How, how near can we be? What is perfect? And so this is how you're going to overcome sins in your life, guys. Instead of trying to fight sin, trying to, to, to resist it, those kind of things, you've got to turn and pursue righteousness. I've done this both ways. Because I came, I came out of a very, very rigid tradition of faith. And, and so I was taught, you got to fight sin. you got to beat it down. you got to put that sin to death. And they're not wrong. Those are scriptural truths in the sense that Paul said to mortify sins or put to death the sins of your body. The problem is they, would, they didn't quite get to the place of grace. It was always works. you got to just try harder. Do all you can. You, you, you. Well, here's the problem. God killed you. You came to faith in Christ. He nailed you to the cross. He's done with that old you. You can't reform the flesh. You can only be born again. 
You can, I'm going to say that again because I don't think that's settled at all. You, you cannot reform the flesh. You can only be born again. Amen? Amen. Okay? So, so now we begin to look, and we do what Paul says, Romans 6, and reckon ourselves to be dead to sin out of the King James. Reckon. I like the King James because it uses the word reckon. I'm from the South. I like the word reckon. I reckon y'all are doing all right. That's how we say it, all right? <laughs> reckon is an accounting term. It's an, it means that you are, you're looking at the numbers and you're balancing the books, okay? And you are reconciling them. And so Paul says, reckon that you're dead to sin. Why, Paul? Because you're dead to sin. That's what Romans 6 teaches. You're dead to sin, okay? And so instead of resisting and fighting and, and, and trying to mortify sin, Paul says, don't try to mortify sin. Reckon sin as dead. That's how you put sin to death. When you do that, you are now free to pursue right. Now, you're, now instead of asking the question, oh gosh, what have I done wrong? I mean, I still start my prayer times this way. I start my prayer times with this accounting of sinfulness before God. And, 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 and I get it, and that's why I was trained. But when you reckon yourself dead to sin, now we're in a place where we can begin to pursue what's righteous. And so, yeah, maybe you start your prayer time going, okay, God, I need to clean yesterday's slate. But in, don't stop there. Instead, go, okay, God, what's on, the, what's on the agenda today? God, what do you want to say, and how do you want to say it with my life? You see? That's what we're out here doing. You want to live in victory over sins? You want to overcome the addictions? You want your marriage to get better, your relationship to your children as a parent or to your parents as, as a child? Do you want those things to get better? And start pursuing righteousness. And understand, this all comes by God's grace. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is inside of you right now. Okay? And so that righteousness is there. And you can begin to pursue it. Now let me give you a passage that Paul gave us in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Paul, in Philippians 3, before this, verses 6 and preceding, he was kind of listing all the awesome things in his life. Okay? So let, let's get in character, all of us. Uh, think of some awesome things in your life. You know, the time you won the lottery. <laughs> the time you won Miss America. Oh, I'm just kidding. Real stuff, real stuff. Think of all those wonderful things in there. Here's what Paul says about all the wonderful things in his life. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Oh, bummer. Michael, I don't like the way you set that up. I know. <laughs> but I know, but I but now I consider them worthless. Because of what Christ has done, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Told you last week and maybe a few times. You'll probably hear it a few more times. Salvation is a free gift that will cost you every worthless thing. And I want you to understand that in order to live free and more free and with less sin in your life, you pursue the righteousness that is Christ. You pursue Christ. Go after Him with sweet abandon. He's worth it. You know, here's the thing that's going to happen, guys. If you can believe this or at least stew on it, think about it. The longer you pursue Christ, the longer you are on this journey of faith, 
You're going to look back at things that you see now and think are so valuable. And one day you're going to be down the road another piece. And you'll look back and you'll wonder why they were valuable at all. It happens just as a natural occurrence in life. But in faith, it is more so. And so, yes, there is victory over sins. Will you ever be sinless in this life? I don't think so, but there are people who would argue with me. Uh, because every time I sin less, I tend to get proud. And then there's more sin. <laughs> Woo! I'm not doing this right, right? But if you will pursue Christ, that pursuit will push the worthless things out. Amen? Amen? Okay, so Jesus gave us victory over expectations of others. Jesus gave us victory over sin. And then, then the cool part. Let me go into verse Philippians 3.10, and I'll jump in. Philippians 3.10 says this. That's right after Philippians 7-9 through 9 that I just read, okay? So I'm, I'm still in the same text. Verse 10, Paul writes, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him. See, Paul, I ha you had me over there, but you want, uh, okay. Sharing in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus' victory over expectations led to a, a victory or a partner with a victory over sins that went and led into a place of victory over death. Paul puts it this way. The sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin. Say amen. amen. And death. Let me read that again because I don't think you heard it. They will live in triumph. Say triumph. triumph. Say over sin. Over sin. And, death. and death. Do you know anyone who's gotten over death yet? Only Jesus, only one I know so far. I didn't know Lazarus personally, but uh, I'm just so far, that's the only one I know. Jesus Christ gave us victory over death. Amen. Victory over death. That is, that's insane. That is not, I did a funeral yesterday, and I, and I, ah, I hate death. Death stinks. I got a lot of people who went, went through it, hate death. Jesus has victory over death. Thousands of years ago, God put Adam and Eve on this planet as representatives of the entire human race. As soon as he put them here, Lucifer, who either had fallen from heaven or this was his fall, showed up in the garden. In that garden, there was no death. There was no sickness. If there were mosquitoes, they didn't eat people. I don't know. Why Noah didn't kill him on the ark? I don't know. But everything is perfect. Human beings were not created to die. <laughs> they weren't created. That's why Adam lived to be 963. Three or four. Anyway, a lot. Older than me by a couple of minutes. <laughs> Satan shows up in the garden. The accuser shows up in the garden. Lucifer, angel of light, shows up in the garden. And he tempts Adam and Eve, and they as perfect representatives of the human race, meaning that no one could have ever made a more accurate decision for us than they. They chose 
to give Satan the keys to the kingdom and in doing so introduced sin, singular, and death on this planet. And the war was on between life and death, light and dark. And beginning with Adam and Eve then Cain and Abel and on it went. Men, women, children, sickness, disease, age, death. And people died and they kept dying and they never stopped dying. And then God, knowing that mankind needed a new representative, sent Jesus Christ. Knowing that mankind needed someone to make a choice that mankind did not have a choice to make, the ability or power to make, Jesus came, born of a virgin, lived a powerful and perfect life, and the war intensified. The day he's born, or the, within the first two years of his life, Herod tries to kill him, and many babies are murdered because of Jesus. Death chased Jesus every day of his life. And while death is chasing Jesus, Jesus is facing death and speaking life into it. And everywhere death shows up and Jesus shows up, Jesus walks out of it with victory. Dead people rise. Dickness, uh, sickness flees. Blindness is run, run out of the place. Life goes. And everywhere Jesus speaks, he speaks life every day of his life because he was not under the sentence of sin singular and he was not under the condemnation of death that sin brings. So he brought and lived life, and Satan, every day, every demon of hell, every awful thing he could throw at Jesus, he did. And every time Jesus turned what the enemy meant for evil and turned it into good. you got to love God. God is so good at turning the enemy's plans for evil into good that he gets the credit for the enemy's plans. It is stupid. Well, the enemy tried to kill Jesus, the only human who ever lived that was not under the sentence of death, Satan wanted to kill and sentenced to die. This is what the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is about. Aslan's death on the stone table was how C.S. Lewis was trying to graphically portray this conflict. And so, one Friday afternoon, Satan accomplished his goal. The earthly rulers whose plans were evil. You'd think as many times as God had taken their evil and made it good, they'd have had some sense that this could go wrong. <laughs> I like to think of uh, the Facegram group Friday night. Satan messaging death and corruption. A group. Satan. Hey guys, he's down! Yeah! Woo! Hashtag yay! <laughs> Death, you keep him dead. Corruption, you destroy that house he lived in. They texted back. They messaged back in the group. Death says, I got this. Hashtag Death never takes holiday. <laughs> Corruption. Messages back, we're on it, boss. Hashtag, always keep riding. Friday night, it's looking good. 
They're back and forth, patting themselves, high fives on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's dead. He's done. Friday night's good. Saturday morning, the message goes out again. Devil gets up. Hey, man, is it, how's it going over there? Death says, we got this. Hashtag, he's gone forever. Corruption's back. Hashtag stinky in here. Corruption's going on all day Saturday. Death, corruption, trying to destroy that body that Jesus Christ was in, trying to make sure he stayed dead all day throughout the day. We got this. Woohoo. Saturday night. All right, guys, I'm about to turn in. How are we doing over there? All night long. We're working. He's done. Devil gets up Sunday morning. Message goes out. How's it going, guys? Third day. Devil replies. I mean, death replies. Hashtag death took a holiday. Because Jesus Christ, he said, I lay down my life of my own will. And I take it again. Jesus Christ took that tomb as a doorway into hell, took away the keys of death and hell from whoever possessed them at that moment, Satan, I guess, took them away and walked out of that tomb. And when he chose to live, he lived. And death took a black eye, got knocked out cold. I'm not sure he could kill him by the rest of the day. Corruption started smelling better after Satan. I mean, after Jesus walked out of that grave. The, the, the door that was sealed. Do you understand that the Roman government put seals on a tomb to keep a dead man in? Do you understand how nuts that is? And do you also understand it did not work? Jesus overcame death. The Bible says in uh, Romans 5.21, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 7.38, anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the Scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Guys, I wanted to share these scriptures with you to see that we have within us, because we have Christ within us, as followers of Christ, we have eternal life resident within us. Jesus is there. Eternal life. And Jesus says that if you have Jesus Christ, you believe in Jesus Christ, you follow his commands, that out of your life flows rivers. Say rivers. Not river. Not, not river. Rivers. When I go home to, to Tennessee or when I go see family, Rock Springs is my home, sorry about that. When I go see family, there's a, there's a place where the Mississippi and the Ohio, and, and there's one other river, Illinois, I think, they run together. There's three major drainage rivers of the Midwest that run through that area. And so uh, it's always, um, an, mm, man, it's terrifying, actually, because those bridges need work. But anyway... These mighty rivers flow through and they, they drain all of America down into the Gulf Coast. 
And here Jesus says, if you believe in me, out of your life flow, out of your heart flow rivers of living water. You see, just like Jesus Christ, who was life, came and destroyed death, kicked him in the teeth, walked out of that grave in power, that's also our job. We bring life everywhere we go. You are rivers of life. You have in you rivers of life. Do you know, Christians, that we have the power because of Christ's residency within us to change the atmosphere of every place we go? Remember how we started this message talking about the world is in this atmosphere of sin and here we are in that atmosphere of sin? But Jesus showed us that even though you live in the atmosphere of sin and death, you don't have to settle for sin and death. You can bring life everywhere you go. You can change the atmosphere of every place. How do you do that? You rest and rely upon the life of Christ that's within you. You celebrate the fact that you are not waiting for eternal life. You have eternal life right now. No one can kill you. They can change your address, but they can't kill you. You don't, Chris, I love this. Christians don't die, man. They life. When my day comes, all right, and hopefully it's, it's long after yours. <clears throat> but when my day comes, when my day comes, I want you guys, I want you guys, this is probably inappropriate. I'm sorry. I want you all to put the fun in funeral for me. Like, what? Guys, I'm telling you, I, I won't die. I will life. I will be more alive than I have ever been. I will be more excited than I've ever been. Man, you know, I know you're saying, well, I will be sad to leave my family behind. But here's the thing. My father wipes away all the tears, takes all the pain, and I get to go home, and I get to be with him. My next mission begins. Your view of heaven might be harps and clouds. My, mine is swords and horses, okay? I, I just got a different view here, all right? I just, I, I tried harp and I, I almost lost three fingers. I, I just, that's not my thing. But, but man, I, when basic training is over, I, I'm, I'm getting a new assignment. Amen. I, I want you to be excited about that. I, I, I don't want you to be excited about the fact that, that we have heaven and we have eternal life. I want you to be excited about also that Jesus is coming back. And so it's possible that people in this room may not die. It's possible that you could get transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Let me, oh, you wanted me to read that passage, I bet. So I will. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. I'm telling you, when Paul says something's wonderful, I'm betting it's wonderful. When we will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet's blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forevermore, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. You have victory over death. Verse 55. Death. You gotta, you gotta love when Paul stops and just addresses death straight in the face. You know, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? That is Greek for near, near, near. 
56, for sin is the sting that results in death. The law gives sin its power, but thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death. Say, and death. And death. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One more verse. So, my dear brothers and sisters, you understand the so is a conclusion he is pulling off of what he just said. My brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Oh, my gosh, man. Guys, Molly Skaggs, daughter of Ricky Skaggs, just wrote a new cover of uh, Johnny Cash's song, Ain't No Grave. Ain't No Grave. Any, any of you young folks, younger you know, than other folks, remember that? Ain't no grave going to hold my body down. Oh, it's real bluegrassy and awesome. So good. Amen. When that trumpet sounds, excuse me, but ain't nothing holding me down. Amen. One of my favorite reformers was William Tyndale. Was it Tyndale? That he translated the Bible? And then they killed him. Then they dug him up, burned him to ash, and put him in a river. And I love Tyndale's story because, I mean, he upset them so much with God's truth that they felt the need to dig up his dead body and kill him again. <laughs> and here's the great news. They failed. <laughs> Tried to kill him twice. Couldn't do it because one of these days, the trumpet's going to sound. I'm not even going to try my shofar noise, uh, that's, which is an ancient Israeli trumpet. I'm not, well, I kind of want to now, Leonard, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but that trumpet's going to sound, and I don't know how God's going to do it. Somehow he's going to pull all the atoms together that were Tyndale and transform them into a brand new body. And then he's going to go to heaven, going, looking back at those persecutors going, neener, neener, neener. <laughs> Death, where's your victory? Sin? Where's your sting? Because Jesus took the sting. And Jesus will eventually kill death. Amen. Let's stand up. Worship team, would you guys come? Heavenly Father, I don't know if everybody in this room has got this settled with you. I don't know if everyone in this place has the victory that comes in Christ. And Lord, I don't want them to leave without it. And so I pray for any life that has not yet committed to you, that has not surrendered the throne of their life to you. I pray for every life that they would do that today. That by, when this prayer is over, they would immediately go to my right where there will be people at the tables and they would learn how to place their faith in Jesus Christ and they could have victory over expectations, over sin, and over death. But Lord, I also want to pray for the children of God in the house. I pray, Lord, for those overwhelming victors in this place. I pray that you would send us out of this place with so much confidence in who you are and what you've done that we terrify the enemy and destroy his works. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Thank you.